Genesis, and we're going to spend several weeks going through this, these chapters at the end of the book of Genesis, Genesis 37 through 50. I've entitled the sermon series, The Maker in the Mess. We're going to see how God is at work in the time in the history of his people and how he brought a savior out of all of it. And so this morning, what I want us to do first of all in this first point is we're going to look at the concept, the theme of divine dysfunction. Because if you can't tell by reading this family tree and this family history in Genesis chapter 37, this is a messed up family. They have a lot of problems, and it's been going on generationally, as we will see. And one thing that this passage teaches us crystal clear is salvation, getting right with God, being reconciled to God is an act of sheer grace. It has nothing to do with the way people behave. It has nothing to do with their morality. It has nothing to do with their track record. It has nothing to do with their family history. It has everything to do with the mercy and grace of God. And you're going to see that over and over and over and over again. God is going to bring a savior out of a family line, namely a son of, a son of uh, Jacob here, Judah, who is plotting with his brothers to kill his own brother. This is our Savior's family history. And this is what we're going to see as we journey through these chapters together in the, in the coming weeks. So, first point, I want, us to look at, I want us to take a backward look at the context. Okay, so we're just going to do a quick three to five minute here flyover of where we've been in Genesis since we haven't been preaching through Genesis, but I want to get us caught up to, to chapter 37 quickly. The story of Joseph in Genesis 37 to 50 is the resolution of the book of Genesis. You're going to see that more in the weeks to come. But Joseph is ultimately tied to God's promises that were made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. And Joseph is functioning as the initial fulfillment of those promises. But before we begin looking at this chapter, I want us to trace for a moment back to what we've seen so far in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the universe in which we live, and it's the result of a sovereign personal God who is distinct from his creation, but nevertheless still ruling over it and working within it. Chapter 2, Moses writing the book of Genesis teaches us that man was made in God's image and given the responsibility to steward the creation that God has made and to rule over it as a vice regent or kind of a junior king uh, over God's creation. In Genesis chapter 3 and 4, God's original creation plan begins to be hijacked as sin comes into the world through man's wicked rebellion against God, seeking to be equal with God. And the result is that sin introduces the reign of death into the world, and God, nevertheless, in his mercy and grace, has a plan to redeem the world, and it's through the seed of a woman that will crush the head of the serpent. So that's what we see in Genesis 3.15. So the rest of Genesis begins to take on this idea of who is this seed of the woman? Who's this child that is going to come from a woman that is going to reverse what sin has brought into the world, namely death and destruction? Well, we immediately begin to see that line form, that biological line form in the book of Genesis. As Genesis begins to focus in on individuals, it doesn't tell the story of all that God's doing in the world. It tells the story of a particular family that God is going to bring about this plan of redemption through. And it begins in the persons of Abel and then Seth and replacing Abel. 
And so that story begins to build in the book of Genesis, and we, and we watch the, the story begin to unfold. But in Genesis 6 through 9, we learn that despite the fact of man's rebellion and despite the fact of widespread depravity, God still enforces moral order in the universe. He brings judgment against wickedness in the way of a flood. But he is also determined to preserve a people for himself, so he saves Noah choosing eight people, Noah and his family, and in the midst of universal and cataclysmic judgment, eight souls are saved. So the human race is preserved, and the line, the seed of the woman, is preserved. Well then, God enters into a covenant relationship with a succession of heads of families. And with a view to bringing his blessing upon the fallen world, we see this story unfold in Genesis 15 through Genesis 24, as Abram, Abraham and Isaac and then their successors begin to carry on the promises of God. God's covenant promises are passed down from one generation to another, and we see over and over, not necessarily through those families' firstborn sons, which is how we would typically think uh, that this is passed down. From Abraham to Isaac, not to Ishmael, goes the promise. From Isaac to Jacob, not to Esau. From Jacob to Joseph, not to Reuben. And so over and over, God shows that his purpose, his electing sovereign work, will not be the natural choice of men. It will be according to what he wants to do, not according to what we expect him to do. So it surprises us even how God chooses to work because he's perfectly content shattering and breaking our boxes that we want to put him in. And so over and over, the covenant line is passed on. And so finally we get here to Jacob and his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham, now Jacob's family, and how the covenant line is going to be passed on through his children. And that's where we land in Genesis 37. So the Joseph story then marks a transition from the establishment of God's promises to actually beginning to work those promises out in terms of fulfillment. Now, we're at a point of challenge, though, because God promised in Genesis 12 that Abraham would be the father of a great nation. Remember that? Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and makes that promise. Yet, by the time Abraham comes to die, he only has one son who's in the covenant line who himself will die with only one son in the covenant line. Isaac and Jacob, therefore, function as down payments on the promise, giving hope for future fulfillment. But even as Jacob bears 12 sons, as we see in this chapter, the question remains as to how long this fledgling family is going to flourish into a nation. They are at each other's throats seeking to kill each other. So how is the covenant line going to be protected so that the seed of the woman, ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, can come if there's internal family conflict and as we'll see in coming chapters, there's external famine getting ready to come and wipe out thousands of people. So Genesis 37 marks a turning point in the narrative. And as a result, a new question emerges. What is going to happen to God's purpose? And it doesn't look good. It does not look good. 
So that's a backward look at context. That catches us up to where we are in the story of Genesis. Okay, now point number two, a downward look at conflict. Let's look at what's actually going on in this chapter in terms of conflict between these brothers and how that is working to thwart the purpose of God. Well, we were told back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, not just a promise, but also that there would be something else. Genesis 3.15, this prophetic promise that God makes through Moses regarding the seed of the woman who is going to be born that is going to crush the head of the serpent. But there's also in that verse a seed of the serpent that is going to work against the seed of the woman. So there's actually two seed existing in the world, the offspring of the devil and the offspring of God, and those will be at war with each other. And we see that played out throughout Genesis. Sibling rivalry is not new to the book of Genesis, right? It's all over Genesis. There are families fighting each other. Why? Because Satan does not want God's promise to be fulfilled. And he has offspring that he's sending to try to thwart that plan. Think about it. The very next chapter from Genesis chapter 3, when we receive that promise, when we hear about the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, we see it played out in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. Because Cain, the seed of the serpent, kills Abel, the seed of the woman. And then we see it recapitulated over and over again in the book of Genesis. Ishmael mocks the younger and favored son Isaac, leading to an estrangement between the two. Jacob and Esau fight even while in the womb, according to Genesis 25. Jacob deceives Esau, who in turn plots his brother's murder. And then moreover, even Leah and Rachel... Jacob's wives share a rivalry that incorporates the themes of favoritism for the younger and jealousy as well. So the seed conflict, the conflict between siblings and all of this playing out in the book of Genesis is not new. It's, it's in fact climaxing here in the story of Joseph. Now I want us to see how this conflict plays out. Wanna, let's take a look at the three characters quickly. We have Joseph, we've got Jacob, his father, and then we've got his 11 other brothers. All of these people are messed up to varying degrees, including Joseph. So we'll start with him since he's the least messed up, but he's still broken. He's morally good, but he's immature. He's 17 years old. And I've read all kinds of stuff, you know, that tries to get jo Joseph as the perfect man. You know, he's not doing anything wrong here. He is doing stuff wrong here. Okay? He's not perfect. He's immature. He's 17. Okay? Now, he is a morally upstanding man, as we will see in the, in the chapters to come. But here, he's a 17-year-old boy. He's a junior in high school. And he's, he's morally good, but he's immature. Notice a couple things. According to verse 2, he brings a bad report against his brothers. He's the youngest. Right? 17-year-old boy brings a bad report to his dad about how his brothers are behaving. I mean, do you think there's any immaturity in that? Yeah. In fact, the word translated bad report is used in Proverbs 10.18 as slander. Joseph did not like his brothers, or at least he didn't like being a servant to them. 
as much as they liked having him as a servant. So he brings back maybe an exaggerated, perhaps fabricated report about some of their misdeeds. Now, we're not told. We have to kind of read into that. But Moses says it's a bad report. doesn't say it's a report. It's a bad report. And then the dreams that he starts having. Think about that. How does he begin sharing those dreams? He shares his dreams with his brothers, and he kind of appears to be rubbing their nose in it a little bit. At least that's the way they take it. After all, they didn't like the first dream, and what does Joseph do? He tells them the second dream, which is even worse for them. He's like, not only are you, according to the first dream, you're going to be worshiping me, but according to the second dream, all of creation is going to be worshiping me. So they don't like the first dream, so he tells them the second dream? Joseph appears to want his brothers to know that he's not only their father's favorite, but he's also God's favorite. So he's got, he's got some immaturity here, and that's contributing more to this conflict, so much so that Jacob gets mad at him and says to him, why, you know, why are you sharing this kind of information in verse 10? And his father rebukes him for doing stuff like that. So we've got, we've got a really, really messed up family so far. Now let's take a look at Joseph, or Jacob. We've, we've seen Joseph. Jacob's, Jacob's dysfunctional fatherhood is on full display. First of all, it's not a good idea to have a favorite kid. Just newsflash, parents. Okay? Don't have a favorite kid. Jacob has had this happen to him for generations. He's committing his father and his grandfather's sins that are being passed down. He, Jacob appears to be repeating the same toxic favoritism that he had experienced. Go back and read the previous chapters in Genesis. It was nasty. Isaac and Jacob and Esau, they had a nasty favoritism-drenched relationship with their dad. I mean, you had a mama's boy and you had a daddy's boy. And they were fighting against each other. And it's interesting that Jacob is deceived by clothing. Did you see that at the end, right? The, the, the coat that Joseph wore comes back and it's drenched in blood and he's deceived that his son is dead even though his brothers know that they haven't killed him. But it's, it's interesting that Jacob is being deceived by clothing just as he deceived his dad with clothing. See, deception, just the sin carries on. Gener we're passing our sins on to our children. They're learning from us. They're watching us. And so Jacob is just repeating his father's sins. My daddy had a favorite. I have a favorite. And it just passes on the toxicity, and it goes down through the family. And it's dysfunctional. So you've got Joseph, you've got Jacob. Now you've got the brothers who are astoundingly wicked. They are unified, completely unified. They probably had a, a business meeting and voted on this. They, had a, they were unified in their hatred against their youngest brother. All 11 of them. And it says it again and again. Look at verse 4. We see this. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Then verse 8, we see it again after the report of the first dream. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then we see it again in verse 11. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Jacob sends 
Joseph to his brothers, beginning in verse 12, to check him out. And there his brothers, according to verse 18 through 24, seek to kill him. They're going to do away with Joseph and all of his dreams and all the favoritism that's going on. So they, do, they decide not to kill him, that that won't be the best route, but they're going to throw him into a pit. And as the traders come by on their way to Egypt, his brothers sell him into slavery. And then they return to report on this to Jacob, and Jacob begins to grieve. Now, I want you to, I want you to think about this. Look at a couple of their, the ways in which these brothers are exceedingly wicked. Look at verse 24 and 25. Just see, the con- just see the contrast here. And they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then look at verse 25. Then they sat down to eat. What is wrong with these men? If you do something profoundly evil and wicked, do you feel like going and getting some lunch? They, like, they can eat on this knowledge. They can eat after doing a horrifically wicked, sinful act, knowing that their brother, in who's, who's down in the pit, has no water, is going to starve likely, but they're going to make sure they get a meal in. This just shows you how seared their consciences are. They have no problem whatsoever doing this. Throwing him in the pit. Let's eat. And then the caravan comes by. In verse 25, that are carrying, coming from Gilead, heading into Egypt, and they sell Joseph into slavery instead of killing him because of Judah's wise, righteous statement here, sarcastic. Verse 26, then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him, so they sold him into slavery. Reuben comes back, the oldest, verse 29, returns to the pit, see that Joseph is not in the pit, and he tears his clothes, and he returns his brothers and said, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? And then they took Joseph's robe. Now think about this. They're taking Joseph's robe, they're slaughtering it, they're dipping it, the robe in blood, in the goat's blood, to try to picture that he's been killed and massacred. And then they're going to take this back to their dad as evidence that Joseph has been killed. Now, look what they do when they get to their dad. First of all, Jacob responds terribly. He, verse 34, he tears his garments, he puts on sackcloth, he mourns for his son for several days. And notice verse 35. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. What kind of deception and cruelty and wickedness is this? You know how they can comfort him? Telling him the truth. That's how they can comfort him. But they don't do that. They're, comf- they're blatantly lying to their dad. Oh, I'm so sorry he's dead. I know oh, We're grieving too. Take however long you need to take, dad. This is amazingly sinful. And the fact that they cover it up for 20 years. They don't even tell him right away. A couple decades pass before he gets the news that, hey, we didn't actually kill him. Or he wasn't, act, he, he wasn't actually killed. So just the, the, the wickedness of the brothers is on full display here. Now, sibling conflict, as I've said and as we've seen, has racked this family 
and endangered the promise of God in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, since Adam and Eve's first children. So what will happen to the covenant promises in the midst of this Cain-like behavior that's taking place in this family? Well, lest we think chapter 37 of Genesis is just a moralistic tale teaching us as parents not to play favorites with our children and for kids to not be jealous of their siblings, this chapter exists for a much greater purpose. And that much greater purpose is that it points us to Christ. Okay, so that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. We've looked at a backward look at the context, Genesis 1 through 36, trying to get a lay of the land. Then we've spent a couple moments looking at this dysfunctional family and all their conflict and the, the actors in it with Joseph and Jacob and his brothers. And now we want to look, take a forward look at Christ. What does this passage teach us about the coming of Jesus Christ? I have four things. Number one, preservation. Preservation. Joseph is not killed by divine design. God is working in Judah's heart to bring that idea to the surface. God orchestrated the caravan coming along as they were eating the meal and the thought coming into their head, hey, let's sell him into slavery, let's not kill him. They're driven by selfish ambition, but God is using that to preserve his promise so that the line will not be wiped out. Because what happens? Think about it. If those of you who know the story of Joseph, which many of you do, if Joseph dies, that family dies because there's a famine coming that they know nothing about that is going to wipe out those people. Therefore, God's promise is wiped out because he's pledged to bring it, bring his promise, bring his Messiah, bring his Christ through the family of Abraham. But if there's a famine coming and there's no Joseph to save them, there is no family of Abraham anymore. And God's salvation plan is done. But God's not going to let that happen. God's not going to let that happen. And that's why he doesn't permit Joseph to be killed. But also, he doesn't permit Joseph to be killed because of the content of the dreams. Think about who's giving those visions to him. Who's giving those dreams to him? God clearly is communicating to this family through Joseph's dreams about Joseph being some sort of king. We see that a number of ways in Genesis 37. So Joseph's famous coat of many colors, right? We hear about it. Those of you who have seen Joseph in the amazing Technicolor dream coat know all about the big coat. Okay, well, the coat is really there to signify some sort of royal garment. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 18 talks about this. This is, a, this is a royal kind of garment. And Joseph is clearly seen as the leader among his brothers. Even though he's 11th in the birth order, Jacob looks to him for the supervision and administration of his other children. Right? That's why he sends him out. That's why he gets the report from him. How are things going? Are they doing what they're supposed to be doing? So whether these associate Joseph with royalty or not, the dream sequences definitely do. In the first dream, Joseph's sheaf is exalted above his brothers. And in the second dream, Joseph is exalted to the point where the sun, moon, and the 11 stars, speaking the 11 brothers, bow down before Joseph. So Joseph is on his way to royalty. 
He doesn't know how that's going to happen, but these are just dreams that God has given him. But my point is, is as we see this unfold in the chapters to come, that this rise to royalty is not merely evidence of God's love for and uh, affirmation of Joseph's faithfulness. But rather, it's a tangible evidence of God's unswerving commitment to bring his Messiah into the world, to bring his true only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to preserve the Abrahamic line so that that happens. God promised Abraham a dynasty in Genesis 12, and Joseph is beginning to fulfill those promises. He's becoming a new Adam that's going to be mediating God's blessing to the nations. He's going to be a beloved son and a servant king. And Genesis 45 through 50 as we see the second half of the story, Joseph affirms many of those realities, as we'll see in coming weeks. So that's preservation. That's number one. So we should read, we should read this chapter with great thankfulness. Even though it's racked with sin and problems, and we should grieve the dysfunctionality of this family, we should look and say, I'm so glad he didn't die in that pit. I'm so glad he got sold into slavery. Not that the slavery or the being in the pit was a good thing, but the way God used it to preserve the Abrahamic line. Second, providence. Providence. While Moses keeps Joseph center stage here in Genesis 37 to 50, who's the main actor? Is it Joseph? No, it's God. The story isn't just about how Joseph fulfills God's promises to Abraham, but about how God keeps his promises through a rejected but royal son. The covenant is secure in the hands of a sovereign God who orchestrates the actions of evil men for his good purposes. Through Joseph, God is beginning to reverse the curse and fulfill his promises. God is using Joseph to turn back the effects of the fall and accomplish in part his promises to Abraham. He stacks the odds against himself. That's what God does in this chapter. And demonstrates over and over again his power to use an imprisoned slave, exiled by his own family, to save the world. This major section of the Bible, Genesis 37 to 50, is about betrayal, injustice, cruelty among brothers, among God's people. But there's a quiet working of a sovereign God behind the scenes to reverse and redeem the whole mess. A story that's been retold many, many times. Think about this. Joseph's dreams are fulfilled by the attempts of his brothers to prevent them from being fulfilled. That's what God does. God says to these brothers, you don't want these dreams to be fulfilled, so I'm going to fulfill them through the way that you envision not fulfilling them. That's how God works. So God is able to do what we cannot do. No surprise, right? God is able to pick up evil in his hands, use it, and bend it and repurpose it toward a different outcome, a redemptive outcome. And then when he's finished, he puts it back down 
and he steps away, and his hands are still clean. Amazing. That's what God does. That's what providence is. It's God's invisible hand working in and through the evil of the world to bring about redemptive good such that when he steps away, he's not guilty. He's innocent. But he's used all that guilt for a good purpose. So that's providence. Number three, promise. Perhaps Moses spends so much time writing about Joseph to show us that God can pull off the impossible through a seemingly insignificant Jewish man rejected by his brothers. Perhaps Moses spent so much time on Joseph so his people would anticipate a coming Joseph who would finally and completely reverse the curse and fulfill the promises that God had made, he being an insignificant Jew as well who was rejected by his own brothers. Joseph's story is the story of Jesus. God is the better father who sent his favored son, but we wanted to kill him, and so we threw him in a pit, namely an empty tomb, after his crucifixion. But that son, as we will see, will ascend to the throne and will reconcile us to God the Father by forgiving us and speaking mercy when we deserve judgment. So that's the promise. That's what we see beginning to be fulfilled in this very first chapter of the Bible. And finally, number four, or very first book of the Bible, I should say. We've seen preservation, providence, promise, now presence. One more application for us. John Bloom, a writer for Desiring God, makes a comment about why we're given so many details about Joseph's life. Think about that. He gets more details than about anybody else in the book of Genesis. Well, definitely in the book of Genesis. He gets 14 chapters. Abraham doesn't even get that. Adam doesn't get that. The creation of the world doesn't get that. It gets one chapter. Maybe two. And then Joseph gets 14? I mean, why? Why is that there? It's meant to communicate something to us about God's involvement in the details. And this is what John Bloom says. I think it's on the screen. Why does God give us more details about Joseph's life than any other individual in Genesis? Genesis has an interesting structure. It zooms over the creation account like a rocket, about 3% of the book. Soars over the millennia between Adam and Abraham like a jet, about 15%, dropping speed and altitude over Noah. And cruises over Abraham, 21% of the book, Isaac, 8%, and Jacob, 23%, like a helicopter hovering here and there. Then it sort of drives down the road of Joseph's life, devoting to it nearly 30% of its content. One of the many reasons God gives us a close-up of Joseph's life is to show us how active he is. How he never leaves us or forsakes us all along the way in both the good and the evil things we experience. The detailed narrative of Joseph's life, among many other things, is a loving letter from your good shepherd. The same good shepherd who guided Joseph through green pastures and the valley of the shadow of death, pursuing him with good all the days of his life. To remind you that no matter what you are experiencing, and, and you need to hear this, some of you need to hear this this morning. Some of you are experiencing bitterness right now. 
Maybe you're experiencing difficulty. Joseph has a word for you. God has a word for you. And it's this. To remind you that no matter what you are experiencing, sweet or bitter, good or evil, no matter how long it has lasted, he has not left you alone. He is with you. He is working all things together for good. And he will be with you to the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to dip in a little bit, just put our toe into the story of Joseph and think back about the context of this story and the conflict that is so central to this chapter and also look forward to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for preserving the line of Abraham so that our Savior could come into the world. Thank you for providentially guiding all of these evil episodes not in any way sinning yourself, but using this sin for a redemptive good. Thank you for the promise that we have already seen fulfilled in the history of our world and the coming of another favored son that you sent on our behalf to be thrown into a pit and rise from the dead and ascend to the throne of the universe and send his Holy Spirit to be present with us till the end of the age. Thank you for this story. Thank you that it's true. And thank you that it's not just the story of our lives, but it's the story of the life of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.